Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. chapter 1 for part 2 of this brief Christmas series. John 1, we're going to read the first 18 verses here in just a moment. Start with me there in verse 1. John 1 beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light. But he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we come, we bow ourselves before you and pray, speak, O Lord. Teach us, instruct us, bless what happens in this time, O God. Lord, we pray for our little ones in the next room and we pray that you will win their hearts to yourself. Teach them your truth, convince them, bring them to believe, open their eyes. And Lord, we pray that you will do the same in here. Lord, every one of us, wherever we are, we ask that we'll be drawn to you for your sons and daughters in this room, those who have been born of God, who have trusted in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you will teach us, instruct us so that we see more of your glory, that we are brought to a place of amazement that finally convinces us to leave sin that we've been holding on to. God, that we come to fear you because we see that you're majestic, you're holy, that you are the one who is worthy of all worship, all praise. So please show us this. 
Father, we pray for any in this room that has never turned to Christ to be saved, never fully bowed the knee, never repented. God, I pray that the scales will fall from eyes in this time as you show your truth. So please bless what happens here, oh God. Send your spirit to shine light. Bless me in the work of preaching. Bless all of us, oh God, to worship as we receive your word. We pray that you will be magnified and we pray it through the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. From ancient times, uh, philosophers of the world have sought to understand the meaning of life the great purpose. What, what is it that explains everything? Why are we here? Why does the universe exist? What, what is it that ties it all together? In one sense, to study the, the history of philosophy is watching mankind try to figure out life, try to figure out meaning, the, the, the why behind everything, and to do it apart from the scriptures. Okay, see, that's one of the key phrases in all of this. Uh, those who have the word of God, it, it's no longer like we're wandering around in the, the darkness of the cosmos and there's a billion different galaxies that we could try to find truth in. Those who have the word of God, God has spoken. Light has been given. We know the meaning of life. Not because we're smart and we figured it out, because God said, here's the meaning of life. Here's what ties it all together. But mankind apart from God, mankind apart from God, trying to figure out meaning, purpose, what brings it all together, this is what philosophy of the world has been. Uh, one of R.C. Sproul's great contributions to the church was to, to teach history of philosophy and when you work through and see the developing thought, particularly among the Greeks and those philosophers' names that you heard of in high school and college and such, and see the way that they developed over time, what you're watching is mankind trying to figure out meaning with a capital M, reason with a capital R, truth with a capital T. And apart from the word of God, you can imagine that the results have often been disastrous. We may even laugh at some of them. Heraclitus, ancient Greek philosopher, said that existence can be explained. It's all, it's all connected. It's all tied together by motion, constant change. Parmenides said the exact opposite, <laughs> that whatever is, is, meaning that whatever it is that ties all of the cosmos together, it's unchanging. Thales of Miletus said that water is what ties all together. Water. All things are from it, through it, to it. Water. Now, you know, we can hear some things like that and be like, what? what? Water? Why would you think water would like explain the meaning of life? Remember, this is mankind apart from the word of God. This is mankind walking in darkness. Don't forget that ancient pagans worship the sun, the moon, fire. Um, the Egyptians worshiped the sun in Ur of the Chaldeans where uh, Abraham was from. They worshiped the moon. One of the um, prominent ancient religions was Zoroastrianism. And, and one of the uh, big components of that was they worshiped fire. 
Fire was magical to them. It cooked their food. It kept them from freezing to death. They worshiped it. You know, modern unbelievers who scowl at Christianity have absolutely no idea how much the word of God has enlightened and brought improvement to the whole world, uh, even to those who pretend to be too sophisticated to believe it. But what was man trying to do? Man was trying to make sense of the world, but not having clear revelation through the scriptures. And these philosophers through history, you know, one generation would build upon the one before them. They developed and developed and eventually these Greek philosophers settled on a word to summarize what it is that they were seeking. What is it that explains meaning? What is it that ties everything together uh, and makes sense of life and the universe? And the word that they came up with was, you can probably guess it, logos. Logos. The very word that John uses here when he says, in the beginning was the Word, English translation, logos. Last week we talked a bit about the significance of logos from the, the Jewish hearers who had the Old Testament scriptures. And I mentioned that this had incredible significance to the Greeks as well as they would encounter John's gospel. In the word logos, you can hear we've taken our English word logic from it. We've carried it over into words like uh, anthropology, biology, cardiology, Logos, the Greek philosopher Philo of Alexandria referred to the Logos more than 1,300 times in his writings. This was a major theme among the Greeks as they were trying to understand reality and existence. And, and here, here's, you know, here's a bit of a principle. God regularly gives kindness to the world by um, blessing mankind to um, come to discoveries, to develop uh, thought over the course of time. And he does this even with unbelievers and pagans. You know, it's not just Christians who have made all the world's discoveries in math and science and such. Now, if you listen to modern academia, they would want you to think that, you know, Christians know nothing and in our ignorance, we've never discovered anything. That's absurd. You go back in history and see all that's been done, but God has not just used his people in these things. Even to unbelievers and even to pagans, God has, while there is a lot of craziness and people thinking that water sums up all of existence, there has also been God giving a great deal of mercy to mankind. Brian made a real good point in Sunday school last week when he mentioned uh, Pythagoras discovering his theorem and the ancient Greeks who contributed to trigonometry. And what do we deduce from that? In kindness, God is blessed. He provided. And Greek philosophers who got 9,999 things wrong and never discovered the way of salvation, there is something that they got right. There is an ultimate wisdom. There is a meaning that sums up all of existence, a logic, a truth in infinite form that does tie all of the universe together. They settled on the word logos and God led them to even that very term in his kindness to prepare the world 
for the coming of Jesus. And what John says here in this opening section of his gospel is profound in a way that transcends our understanding of the word profound. Uh, my Old Testament professor in college used to say that John 1 is the most important chapter uh, in all of the Bible, in God's revelation to man. It's possible that he was uh, right in that. Um, John is making a statement that crosses the bridge from the Greek hearers to be able to uh, have some understanding, these Gentile thinkers who had not been raised with the scriptures. In a sense, it's like the Holy Spirit uh, said to those Greeks uh, who were hearing these things, you were right about something. There is something you did deduce from a thousand years of developing thought. You were right. There is something, a meaning, a wisdom, a truth, an answer that ties all of the world and all of the heavens together. But the something is a someone, and that someone is the only begotten Son of God. This is a huge statement that John makes here. As the Greeks would have read uh, John's uh, opening uh, paragraph here, who, who weren't familiar with the Old Testament scriptures and such, this is a way that God um, made a bridge to give some understanding there. John is declaring in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. And the Logos has a name. His name is the Lord Jesus, and he is the only begotten of God the Father. He is the Messiah from the Jews, and he is the wisdom for the Greeks. Last week we began verse 1 uh, and studied through that. Uh, if you didn't catch that, I, I would like to encourage you to go give it a listen, not because I thought I was rivetingly interesting or anything, uh, but just critically important truths that we discussed at some point in your life, you have, at some point in your life, you got to study the council of Nicaea. Okay. At some point in your life, you've got to wrestle through some of the things that are there. So we spent a bit of time talking about Athanasius and the battle of Nicaea, defending the biblical truth that Jesus is uh, homoousios with the father, same in essence as the father of one substance with the father. We saw verse one, tell us that in the beginning, before creation, before time in eternity past, there was Jesus. Jesus is eternal and not made. The second phrase there is that Jesus was with God, and this shows us his personhood. The one true and living God is triune, one God in three persons, so not three gods and not one God in one person, but appearing in different forms. No, one God in three persons. And then that last phrase of verse one, and the word was God. It shows us that Jesus is God with the Father of the same essence. He, there's not a point that Jesus became God. He's not a creation of God, but from all eternity, Jesus has been God with the Father. So we build on all of that this week, which is why the review. We build on all of that this week as we consider verses 14 
and 18. So uh, in those two verses, 14 and 18, uh, there are about nine phrases, each one of them teaching a truth. It's my intention that I'll at least mention each of the phrases, but we only have time to spend um, on just two of them. So be two parts here. Here's number one from verse 14, the word became flesh. The logos from all eternity took a human body. So this is what we mean by that term incarnation that we use a lot of times at Christmas means uh, God taking flesh, God taking a body. God became man, infinite God embodied in a package that even to our eyes seems tiny and placed in the womb of Mary. God became flesh. Now, last week we said that one of the ways that God has built his church, strengthened his church, was by allowing error um, or ordaining there to be seasons that the church had to battle heresy because when we have to battle heresy, we go to our Bibles and even statements that we gloss over quickly and we don't think that they're a big deal, suddenly we see that it is a big deal and we have to battle through these things and, and work through it. We dig in our Bibles and we come uh, to a greater understanding of uh, monumental kinds of truths. Well, there are some more misunderstandings and heresies that the church had to battle um, besides what we discussed last week. And we need to bring up some of those today when we discuss the incarnation that God became man. When Jesus took a human body, he did not undergo a process of metamorphosis. So in other words, he did not transform from one form into another form. So it's not like he used to be God, but now he became a man and has ceased being this. No, no. What, what, what scripture is showing is always has been God, is now, always will be God. But in addition, took human flesh in order to come and dwell among us, to become like us truly God, yet truly man. That, that, that word truly, that, that's an important and helpful word. Eternally God, yet he truly did become a man. Now, you and I are merely human, not divine. Jesus is not merely human, human but he did truly become man. The requirements of what constitutes to meet the definition of truly being a human, Jesus met them. In other words, it wasn't an apparition. It wasn't just that Jesus was this spirit floating around while he was on the earth, but it looked like he had flesh. No, he, he truly became a man. He truly took a body. There's a reason why um, even in the gospels we're shown some things like Jesus eating, <laughs> Jesus growing tired. He truly did have a body. He wasn't just pretending. And as we discuss some of those things and define that we're actually now getting into what was the very first of the heresies that the church had to battle against when it comes to the who Jesus is the person of Jesus one person in two natures so last week I told you about the battle over whether or not Jesus is truly God but that actually wasn't the first battle 
The first battle was over a number who believed in Jesus, but they just couldn't bring themselves to accept that he actually took flesh. The first heresy was comprehending that Jesus is divine, but couldn't, couldn't wrap their minds around and so wouldn't wrap their minds around that he really did become flesh. This is a battle that actually began while the apostles were still alive. And by the way, in the providence of God, it was it happened in this way. The apostles showed us how to think. The apostles showed us how to fight. The apostles showed us how to battle these kinds of things. Um, if you want to flip with me to 1 John chapter 4 for a moment. In 1 John 4, this comes up a, a couple few times in, in John's writings. 1 John 4, if you look at verse 2, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So you, you notice that he doesn't feel the need to go into uh, wrestling through in 1 John, this idea of like, you know, here, let me introduce this concept to you. Let me convince you that Jesus is God. No, they accepted that. But the spirit of the age in their day was wrestling through this. Jesus really did come in the flesh. If you look at 2 John, it's only got one chapter in verse 7. It says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. There is a, a way of thinking that became popular in the Roman Empire, which contributed to some of this battle that the church had to fight. It's a collection of errors that eventually became a full-blown heresy, and the heresy would eventually be called Gnosticism. So, you know, this is the way that the world works. In the world, people in every culture, their, their thinking is always changing, okay? It, it's always in, evolving into some way of thinking. And every generation, they think their thoughts are novel. They don't know that everything's recycled, repackaged, and they're, they're really believing something that's just actually old. They think they're just really enlightened and such. But the culture of the world, it, it, their thinking is always shifting, always changing. And, and we need to know this about ourselves. Us Christians who live in a culture and the world around us is thinking in a particular way, we're always tempted to grab some of the thinking of the world and push it onto our Christianity. You need to hang on to that. This is always a temptation, okay? So we, we can see that really obviously in things like, um, just in our last two worlds, we've seen the culture change very rapidly. We've seen wokeism pushed onto Christianity and try to, try to force them together. You know, on the other side, there's weird forms of Republican Christianity or whatever, and they're trying to take things, trying to take ideas from the world and syncretize it with their Christianity. This is always a danger. And there was a way of thinking that was happening here in the first century and it eventually would become a full-blown heresy that was, it was tempting Christians in the same kind of ways that idea tempt us today. But this is the same heresy that Paul battled in the book of Colossians. So the word Gnosticism is a, is a word you have to know if you're gonna study the book of Colossians because this was some of the things that were being battled there. Gnosticism um, had 
um, a number of parts to it. I'll tell you just a couple of them just to sort of see this in, in the New Testament. One is the worship of angels became a popular part of Gnosticism. This is probably, by the way, in the first chapter of Hebrews, uh, why there's some of the teaching that there is, that Jesus, Jesus is superior over the angels. Jesus is to be worshipped. Angels are not to be worshipped there. By the way, this kind of thing recycles itself through church history as well. Worship of angels and other superstitions like it like the worship and veneration of Mary and saints and such. It's the same kind of idea. Secondly, Gnosticism also developed some weird affinities for asceticism. Asceticism um, has also plagued the church from time to time. Asceticism is the idea of, um, in, in its lightest form, it's like depriving the body of pleasures. At its worst form, um, it would even involve abusing and harming the body, like you may have read about in some monastic communities and such from history. It's, the, it's this idea that I show devotion to God by you know, going out in the desert and trying to thirst myself nearly to death. I'm showing devotion you know, in some kind of way. It's depriving the body. And that's connected with this, this third thing. Really the heart of Gnosticism, one of the core beliefs was this. What is physical is evil. So, so all that is material, all that you can touch, it's evil. Physical matter can't be pure. It can't be holy. It's always evil. Now, by the way, that also plagues the church. And even today, when there are Believers who think that any kind of bodily pleasure is evil, you know, uh, sex is evil, can't enjoy good food, anything, you know, the owning of possessions and, and money and such, that, that's always evil, you know, and so even in my mind, I've had seasons where I just couldn't get my thinking straight and I wrestled through some of that, the owning of possessions and money and such. All of that is little bitty doses, little hints of Gnosticism there. But if you take the full, the full-fledged belief of it there, and you think about it, if you believe that what is physical and material is inherently evil, well then what do you do with the incarnation? Because the incarnation is Jesus, the divine word, taking a physical, real, material body. And so what Gnosticism did is they just denied it. They just rejected it. And, and what this means is, okay, so this is always the way that it goes, the ideas that are out there in the world, they threaten the church, okay? So you had Christians and Christians, both, struggling through wanting to take some of the popular ideas of the world and force it into their Christianity. And so you had some Christians who were wrestling through um, whether or not Jesus did actually come in the flesh. And so this, the, the full-blown Gnosticism, some of them would believe in Jesus, but deny that he had a body, deny that he came in the flesh. So by the way, if you take a look at the book of Colossians for just a second, if you'll turn there in Colossians chapter two, I think the whole book will make more sense to you um, after knowing some of those things. But Colossians chapter two, verse nine, if you see where, where the spirit led Paul to say, Colossians 2, 9, for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Well, you know, why did he say that? Because this was some of the battle that they were fighting there. Jesus is truly God, but yet truly became man. In the New Testament, 
we have uh, several uh, what we believe to be early church hymns, maybe poems or confessions of faith that are quoted from time to time. One of them is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you want to flip over there, 1 Timothy chapter 3, I, I, I think this one was an uh, early church hymn. 1 Timothy 3, uh, 16, look what it says here, by common confession, all right, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That, that first phrase there, he was revealed in the flesh. You know, we can read through that in our Bible study time. It just seems so obvious, but actually, you know, that phrase was battling, you know, principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. This was battling heresies. This was instructing the church. And actually, the incarnation, uh, Jesus truly becoming man, it's taught all through the Bible, all through the New Testament. Even in passages that a lot of times we don't generally think of as a Christmas passage, like from the Gospels, like Luke 2 or something. L let me take you to several of them in the New Testament that all speak to this. Um, if you're still in John, if you look at John 3 and look at verse 13, this is actually that section of John 3:16. If you look at John 3:13, what does it say there? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What, what, what is this about the descending? This is Jesus leaving the glory of heaven. This is Jesus leaving heaven in order to stoop low. Um, when we began the book of Romans, uh, you may remember just even the third verse there as Paul is describing Jesus and his genealogy. One of the things he says is that Jesus is a descendant of David according to the flesh. You know, why that phrase there? Do you say that if somebody asks who was your great, great grandpa? According to the flesh. Well, no, okay, that's all you got, all right? Jesus is descendant of David according to the flesh, but truly in the flesh. So Romans 1.3 is a Christmas text, speaking of incarnation. Um, look at Philippians 2 for a bit. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, this is another one of those that might have been an early church hymn. Uh, Paul is teaching in the section there and he says, verse five, Philippians two, verse five, he gives instruction, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, and then he quotes here what may have been an early church confession or, or him to refer to the Lord Jesus and then tell us be like him, okay, imitate him. But here's what is said, verse six, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Th that section there where it talks about he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. You know, if you think about it, that is stating 
that is stating these, these truths of the incarnation, but as hymns do, saying it in a poetic and beautiful way, saying it in a, in a poetic kind of way that sticks with you. And this is what is being taught there. Jesus descended. Jesus stooped low, took a body, and then went to the lowest points of humiliation. Let me show you just two more in the book of Hebrews, if you flip back there. Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> Hebrews 2, if you look at verse 14. Hebrews 2, 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So you think about it there, what he says, he does not give help to angels. But he does give help to the, the seed of Abraham, those who uh, trust by faith. You know, if Jesus was going to become the propitiation to, to die for the sins of the fallen angels, Jesus would have needed to become an angel in order to be a fit and appropriate sacrifice for them. But if Jesus was going to die for humans... It wouldn't have been enough for him to come and, and come and become a grasshopper or even a lamb. If he was going to die for humans, redeem humans, he would need to become flesh and blood with us. And then it goes on to talk about that because he has shared in flesh and blood, he is able to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, I, I think he says more of that in chapter four, Hebrews four. If you look at verse 14 there, 14 to 16, look what he says here. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, so what is being preached there is, is this. Um, Adam before the fall didn't need a high priest. He didn't need a savior. He didn't need a redeemer. Adam, after the fall, needed a savior, needed a redeemer, needed a mediator, needed a high priest. He needed a sacrifice for his sins, and he also needed someone to bring him to God. He needed a go-between. You and I do as well. We need a mediator, one who will go between. We need a priest to offer sacrifice. We need a sacrifice. Jesus fulfills all of this. But it's also this, that point where it keeps making about he's a high priest, he's merciful and able to lead us to God. 
When you and I need grace, we a lot of times ask for the wrong things, like when we pray, because we don't know what we need. Okay, we, we, we a lot of times we think we need this when actually we need this. Jesus knows exactly what you need. When you need help, we can come to our high priest and ask for help. And he knows exactly the grace to give us. And he is merciful. Our high priest, did you catch that in Hebrews 4, has passed through the heavens. That's incarnation language. He descended from above and has ascended back. He who uh, was eternally God with the Father descended in order to become our high priest and after the resurrection ascended back to his throne at the right hand of the Father. No better place for your mediator and high priest to be. No better place for your high priest to be than seated right next to the Almighty. And this is where Jesus is seated. But it, it, it all is possible because of the incarnation. Our high priest has passed through the heavens. Uh, one of my points in showing you several of these places is that the incarnation, it's all over the New Testament. It's not just in the gospels and the, the Christmas passages that we often think of. Now let me bring us back to John 1 here. John 1 for the, the second part. And go to verse 14. Excuse me, yeah, back, back to verse 14. John 1, verse 14. So the first phrase there is, the word became flesh. Now look at the next phrase. And dwelt among us. The word dwelt there is a word, this is very interesting. It takes the noun for tabernacle and makes it into a verb. Very interesting. So he came and he tabernacled among us. And so, yes, this is intentional. Yes, this is preaching truth. You know, it's, it's amazing how much the Bible will have an entire volume of sermons in one word. One word. He tabernacled among us. Um, I take all of the meaning of the Old Testament tabernacle and apply it to our situation in Christ. How can God dwell with sinners without destroying them? That's the point of the tabernacle. God who is holy, holy, holy and destroys all evil that comes into his presence. And this is a good thing. He is righteous. When evil comes into his presence, he consumes it in his holiness. That is a good thing. But how can God dwell amongst sinners without destroying them in his holiness? The answer is there would need to be a veil of separation. That's the point of the tabernacle. God would come and dwell in the midst of Israel, okay, but without destroying them because it was separated by a veil, his presence. That's the significance of the veil separating that holy of holy places, okay? We'll take all of that language and apply that to Jesus. Jesus came and he dwelled among sinners. How did he do that without killing everybody? Veiled by the flesh. This is some of the genius, by the way, in Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Beautiful, amazing truth that is here. All of it finds its fullest glory in Christ. Uh, God now dwells with us by his Holy Spirit. Jesus has brought something about that we will one day be brought face to face with God. His tabernacle will be among men. But Jesus coming in the flesh, veiled by the flesh. 
This is the meaning of the name that we see come up and that we sing about at Christmas time. Emmanuel, God with us. How can God be with us without destroying the veil? He came and tabernacled among us. The next phrase there in verse 14 says, and we saw his glory. John is referring there to the occasion when he and Peter and James saw the curtain pulled back a little bit to see the glory of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. This was the occasion that God allowed him to see. John saw the glory of Jesus with his eyes. John saw it. By the way, this is not what cult leaders do. Okay, when there's a cult on the earth, it's some dude who develops charisma and he says, hey, I'm the Messiah. And a bunch of people say, okay, this is not what John did. John saw the glory of Jesus. He says, we saw his glory. And it's the kind of glory that only belongs to, look at the next phrase, the only begotten from the Father. Now, depending on the translation you have in your laps, depends on how this part reads here. I have some very strong opinions uh, on this matter. We sometimes joke about our favorite translations. I love the New American Standard and, you know, sometimes knock on you guys with the ESV. Uh, there, there is a place that the New American Standard, I think, could have done better later in this passage. But here, I believe this is the language that it should read. If, if your version of your Bible does not read begotten there, um, I disagree with their translation choice there. And it's not just because there's a particular word that, that is uh, translated here. It's that there is an entire theme from the Bible. You know how we talk about from time to time that you can find a theme back in the book of Genesis and follow it through the whole Bible and we see its great fulfillment in Christ. There's a theme with the word beget, begot, begotten, okay? Going all the way back to the book of Genesis that flows through. And so we've, we trace this through the Bible. You come to Psalm 2 and there's a really big moment of revelation in that in Psalm 2, we're told that the Messiah to come is the son of God. The Messiah to come is begotten of God. And so when John comes here and he says, that uh, Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. There is heavy meaning here. The word is monogenes. And even from English, we can figure that one out. Mono, meaning only, one, okay? And genes, we hear the connection to the word genesis, genesis there. Genes is begotten, only begotten. I'll come back to some of that here in just a bit. The only begotten from the Father, next phrase, full of grace and truth. Jesus is righteous. Jesus is just. Jesus has wrath. One day his wrath will be revealed. All of that is good news, but the best news for sinners, the best news for people who are heading to hell and need to be saved from that, is that he is full of grace. There is mercy in him. And now look down to verse 18. No one has seen God at any time.
time. Now pa pause there before we go into the next part. This, this truth is actually restated numerous times in the New Testament. No one has ever seen God. So for instance, over in John 6, verse 46, it says, John 6, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Okay, he has seen the Father. So this is once again saying the same thing. Jesus is the only one who's seen God. No one has seen God at any time. In 1 John 4, 12, it says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. So what that verse is saying is, nobody can see God, but if they see a Christian living out love, they see the works of God. They see the evidence of God, but no one has seen God. Paul said the same thing in 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. He speaks of God, the blessed and only sovereign King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. All right. So I've proven to you numerous times the New Testament brings this up as an emphasis. Why? Why is this emphasized? Well, no doubt we're told this for some reasons we would talk about on some other days about the holiness of God. The, we, we in our sin cannot approach God, but there's something else here. Something that is also highlighted. There's something emphasized in the fact that there are numerous times in the Bible when people saw God. Wait a second, Pastor. I thought you, you just said no one can see God, but then there are numerous times in the Bible where people saw God, like in Isaiah 6. Remember this passage? Isaiah 6, this amazing um, description of the glory of heaven in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. So, so how does this work? Isaiah says he saw the Lord and John 1 says no one has seen God at any time. Is this one of those contradictions that skeptics are always talking about and they can never produce? No. There's something being emphasized here. I think there's even more glory of the Lord Jesus being revealed in this. John especially highlights this. And I think one of the ways we can see this is uh, if you're in John, flip over to chapter 12 for just a second. John 12. And look at verse 41. Right before verse 41 John quotes a passage from the book of Isaiah that pertains to the Lord Jesus. And then John follows that up with verse 41 by saying these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. When did Isaiah see Jesus's glory? Answer Isaiah 6. When he said in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Isaiah saw Jesus. He had a vision of the living word. No one has seen God the Father, but there is uh, ways that God has revealed the glory of his son. So coming back to John 1:18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is, again, this is the kind of language that we can read through quickly and miss the, the, the great depth and 
weight that this carries, Jesus is described here as the only begotten God. He is the only begotten of God and he is God. He is the only begotten God. This is amazing language revealing the glory of who Jesus is. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. So this would be poetic language of speaking of Jesus right there with the Father. He has explained him. He has revealed God the Father. Well, Lastly, here, here's one of the big applications that this text gives to you and I, and it's also connected with this language of begotten. Back up to verse 11 in John 1. John 1, look at verse 11. We're told here, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In verse 12 there, where it says, become, you, you can become children of God. That's a derivative of the word begot, beget. When in verse 13 there, it talks about those who believe are born of God. Literally, the word there is begotten. And what the Bible is doing here is this is another one of those really big pulling back the curtain moments that come. So I told you this, you can trace this theme of begotten through the Bible. If you go back to Genesis 5, you don't have to right now, but if you want to, in Genesis 5, there is one of the really significant chapters of the Bible that a lot of times we think is really boring. It's the first genealogy in the Bible. Ooh, yay, everybody's favorite family devotion text, okay? It's the first genealogy of the Bible. But it's weighty. It goes like this. It starts with Adam. Adam begot Seth. Adam lived another such and such number of years, and at 930 years, and Adam died. And then you go to Seth. And Seth begot Enosh. And Enosh, and, and Enosh lived a certain number of years there. And then you come to the point, and he died. And so these two phrases are used over and over again. He begot, he begot, he begot, and he died, and he died, and he died. And this is what Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 are preaching in the New Testament when they say, in Adam all die. If you are begotten of Adam, then you die. And die not in the physical sense, sure. Yeah, that's included. But remember, physical death is the tiny little tip of the enormous iceberg that is the full measure and the full definition of what death in its fullest meaning is. Full death is second death. It is to enter eternity, enduring the, the wrath, 
cut off from life and joy and all that is good. If you are in Adam, if you are begotten of Adam, you are in death. You die. In Adam, all die. And so do you see the wonder of what this means here in John 1, where he talks about that you can be begotten of God. Now that brings up a couple questions. Because one would be, well, wait a second, didn't we just see that Jesus is the only begotten and now you're telling me that I can be begotten? Well, yes, there is a way in which you and I can be begotten. Jesus will always be the only begotten. You and I will never reach a status that equals Jesus. He is the only begotten, the unique son of God. But there is a way in which you and I can be begotten. But then the next question might be, but I'm already begotten of Adam. I'm already in his likeness and his image. I'm in Adam. How can I be born of God if I was born in Adam? Friend, the good news of the gospel is that you can be born again. Born again. Begotten of God. You can leave Adam and be joined to Christ. You can leave death and be joined to life. How do we do this? The text says, as many as received him to those who believe in his name. Now, one of the things, especially at Christmas, that I feel I must preach is that it is not enough to believe in Jesus's existence. That is not what it means to believe in his name. That language there of receive Christ, this is very helpful. As many as received him, embraced him, it is to receive him as your Lord, your savior, to know and regard and trust in him as king, messiah, redeemer, to receive him is, you know, figuratively to do what, what Mary Magdalene did when she saw Jesus resurrected to throw herself on the ground and wrap her arms around his legs to embrace Jesus by trusting in him to all who believe to receive him in this way you will be begotten of God. What we plead with you, if you have never trusted in Christ in this way, is to receive him, to believe. Don't just think to yourself that whatever it is, you must have already done because I'm a good person. That's worldly thinking. That's your fleshly heart. You must cross from death into life. You must be saved from hell. And that is only available in Christ. We invite, we plead with you to trust in him. If you want to talk to somebody about that, uh, please find me before you leave and let's have a conversation and let me show you more. Let's pray. <coughs> Our Lord God in heaven, we're amazed year after year as we come back and we study the incarnation, just how big, how wide, how deep, how weighty, how amazing all of this is. You have written a spectacular plan of redemption. And we thank you, Lord, and for what you have done. We rejoice in the amazing grace that you've given. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you took flesh and you came. We thank you that though you did not have to, you could have left us like the angels who rebelled. 
You could have left us in our sins. We worship you that you've looked on us with mercy and grace. We love you for this. We thank you for this. And we want to live in, in, in gratitude, in obedience to show you that we are thankful. Help us to do this, O oh God. Please bless us as we close here. Bless our fellowship and bless us as we leave. And we pray these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND. Or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.